Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me today on this November 20th, 2020 Out of the Question podcast. In my state and a number of others, Lockdowns, curfews, and other tyrannical restrictions are currently in place to deal with the threat of the COVID-19 pandemic. Alternative views are often suppressed or outrightly censored, and yet there's a growing number of health professionals and well-conducted studies that refute the current science on this subject. Today, I pulled out a copy of R.J. Rushduni's book, Faith and Wellness, and I'd like to preface the introduction of my guest with what the book says on its back cover, and I'm quoting. Status regulations, quackery, addiction. These are the modern symptoms of a disease that has infected Western medicine for thousands of years, the disease of humanism. In a series of 13 medical reports, R.J. Rushduni traced the Christian and pagan roots of Western medicine in history and demonstrated how humanist thought has produced vicious fruit in both modern medical practices and in the expectations of patients. How do we heal the medical profession? Rushduni understood that finger pointing will not solve our problems. Because the plague of humanism will inevitably lead to death and not wellness, it is the responsibility of the church and the Christian medical professionals within her to develop a thoroughly biblical theology of medicine and to teach it. Rushduni lays the foundations for this by explaining the connection between salvation and healing, establishing the vital importance of treating the whole man, body and spirit, and renewing the vision for doctors to embrace their priestly callings. This is an essential read for anyone who wants to reform healthcare. So the question I'm posing today is this, how do we heal the medical profession? In other words, what are our marching orders as citizens of the kingdom of Christ in restoring medicine back to God? My guest today is a registered nurse who also happens to be a participant in one of my weekly classes through the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Elizabeth Lurvie is a product of Christian homeschooling and her parents determined that she and her sisters were going to be a part of the solution in medicine and encouraged all of them to become nurses. When I first met her back in 2013, I did so when she attended one of our Law and Liberty Conferences and we've been in touch ever since. She has worked in hospital settings as a traveling nurse and is currently one who accompanies patients having to be transported by plane or helicopter for medical care. Thanks for joining me today, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for having me, Andrea. Now to be clear, you don't purport to be an expert in epidemiology, but you are a continuing student of medical issues and the word of God, and you're active in your profession. During our class a couple of weeks ago, you talked about a book that when you described it was intriguing to me. So I went about to order the book and discovered that you can't get it on Amazon because Amazon has banned it. So I did find it on the author's website and I began to read it. Now that I finished it, I thought it would be useful to our listeners to hear us discuss the book and to understand that all of the medical paradigms we have learned should not be considered necessarily settled science. So let's begin our discussion as we talk about the general thesis of Thomas Cowan, MD's book, The Contagion Myth. Thomas Cowan first starts off basically with the ideas behind Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch and how disease is proven and how the germ theory is still a theory. So Robert Koch 
came up with four scientific postulates that must be met in order for a it was initially a bacteria because at the initial stages viruses weren't even something that they considered yet it was all bacteria and so he added two more when it comes to viruses but just for the sake of this the four postulates to prove disease never have they been proven for any disease that any of us can think of okay i'm going to interrupt you here for a second because yes. i read that and my jaw dropped he included things like rabies uh, he included things like the the disease that was people got if um, there was contamination in milk, which led to the whole process of pasteurization. So explain Correct. to the listeners why it's significant that these postulates, the hypotheses that they were going to test, the fact that they never were confirmed, why that's significant. So the way I believe it's significant, and Thomas Cowan brings it out, in Cox postulates, number one is the microorganisms must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from the disease, but not found in healthy organisms. That's the very first postulate, and everything falls down at that point, as well as the other points, but they can't even give past the first. Okay, so let's describe this. So I have a condition, and 10 other people have a condition. We get tested, and the same thing is seen in all of us. Then they test people who aren't sick and they don't have what they found that we had. Basically, yes. Yes. So if, so let's do typhoid. So typhoid, you have to have the typhoid bacteria in your, and you're in present in, a, in abundance in a, in a blood culture. So all these sick people have a typhoid bacteria and these people who have no symptoms do not have the typhoid bacteria. But if we all remember school, Typhoid Mary, she was basically sent to prison for the last 20 years of her life because she was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid. She never showed symptoms of typhoid, but she had an abundance of typhoid bacteria in her bloodstream, and she never got sick. Go on to the next one now. I just want to make sure that that's clear for people so they understand where right. you're going. So then the second one is the microorganism must be isolated from a diseased organism and grown in a pure culture. That one has been done occasionally. So they, they, they're able to do number two occasionally. But according to Thomas Cowan, Sally Fallon footnote this book amazingly, like they have the research and the proof. So many times science, because it's become a god, fiat power, people act like what science says, like I can say it and therefore it's true. When we put science on that pedestal, they don't have to prove anything. So you can have all the people with this COVID and standing up there basically saying baseless, factless mandates or suggestions or whatever, and they don't have to prove any of it. It's okay, so I think you're getting a little ahead of us. So I want okay. you to go back to the postulates and say, okay, so the first one was... Okay, so the first the, one... I'm saying, let me just say, the first one you told us, we had to be able to see the difference in healthy and, and sick people. And then mm -hmm. the second one was that you had to be able to isolate it in a culture. What was the next in one? In a culture. The third is the cultured microorganism should cause disease when introduced into a healthy organism. So when they put the bacteria in a Petri slide and they isolate it and purify it, then they directly introduce that purified bacteria into a healthy organism. That's number okay. three. Okay. Fourth step is that the microorganism must be re-isolated from the now diseased experimental host, which received the inoculation of the microorganisms and identified as identical to the original specific causative agent. Okay, so, so this sounds like the scientific method. You have an idea, this causes this, you test it, and you reliably get results. And so then you come up with a theory that will say, okay, this is what's causing these problems. Am I right on exactly. that? Exactly. That is correct. Okay. Now, the book talks about how number three, the, the third one about putting it into a healthy host has some issues with potential fraud that can, and in fact, according to the authors, did take place. So why don't you describe that? 
Yes, on numerous occasions. One of the first and biggest that he goes into is the Spanish flu of 1918. So they took 100 healthy individuals who had no flu symptoms. And first they took the secretions from the sick individuals and introduced it to the healthy people, rubbed it in their eyes and their nose, put it down into their lungs. So majorly tried to infect these people and they all remained healthy. So then they took dirty blood or blood from the sick people. They didn't purify it, didn't, but directly injected it, blood from a sick person into a healthy person. Again, they couldn't make these 100 healthy people sick with the Spanish flu. And then when that didn't work, they put the 100 healthy people and made them live in very tight, confined quarters with sick people. And they couldn't make even one of them sick. So that was the Spanish flu experiment. And then uh, uh, one of the other interesting articles, research that he brings up is the 2003 SARS outbreak was caused by COVID, according to the science of that time. There are a few extra steps that are added onto the Koch's postulates whenever they do a virus as opposed to a bacteria, but they still can't make it just even in the bacteria. But viruses cannot grow in a medium in a lab like bacteria does. It has to grow in uh, an alive creature. Okay, so let me stop you again, because I want you to, mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people did biology class and they learned about germs and viruses. But when Louis Pasteur was doing his research and his experiments, they were just talking about germs and the germ theory. Viruses are much smaller. And really, I think the, the year is like 1940s, 1950s, where viruses started being studied and identified as things that are not alive in and of themselves, but attach themselves to a living cell and then start using the DNA and the RNA of the cell to reproduce in the host. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Okay, so that's the theory. That's what we all learned. And so when you say Koch's postulates added two other things, it's because the nature of the difference, as was described between germs and viruses, now we needed an electron microscope in order to identify these things which couldn't really be seen. Correct. Okay. So when you say, so they conducted, how were their tests having to be different when you're testing with viruses to apply those first four postulates as opposed to with bacteria? So one of the differences is the virus can be cultivated in host cells because a lot of times they can't again like with the spanish flu just because they give the host cells a virus doesn't mean they're they're able to replicate so if you are trying to prove that covid cause coronavirus causes covid you would have to isolate first you would have to isolate the disease viruses from the host then the virus would be cultivated in a recipient cells and that is generally where the virus has failed underneath Koch's postulate like they can't even get that far to then go on with the others but proof of filterability the virus can be filtered from a medium that also contains bacteria because viruses like you said are much much smaller than bacteria number four the filtered virus will produce a comparable disease when the cultured virus is used to infect experimental animals. And the virus then can, number five, the virus can be re-isolated from the infected experimental animal. And then number six, a specific immune response to the virus can be detected. That last one is another one that fails almost every time. And we can get into that in just a bit. Okay, so now this is what kind of was shocking to me. And I, I don't want people to think just because I read a book that I suddenly now think that this person is 100% right. I read lots of books and um, I sort of got that from Dr. Rush Judy because I would always look at his, <laughs> his bookshelves and I'd say, you have some of the strangest books. And 
<laughs> he didn't agree with all of them, but he read them in order to have a wide breadth of understanding. So to go back to this whole idea of why this is important, you know, why are you bringing up Koch's postulates, etc.? That if you're going to tell somebody this causes this, you should want a reliability that you know what you're talking about, and. I use an example all the time when my son, who's now a grown man and a father of three, but when he was little, one time I washed the floor and he ran across it and of course slipped and he's crying. And I mm -hmm. said, oh, you know, and he said, the floor came up and hit me. And I said, well, no, that's <laughs> not what happened. But he said, no, no, the floor <laughs> came up and hit me. So from his idea, that's what happened, right? Well, I certainly right. wasn't going to let him think that you know, he was always, his life was in danger because the floor could come up and hit him. So it is important to be able to identify the cause of things if you're going to try to fix the problem. And secondly, if you want to know whether or not certain actions are going to be effective or not. Right. So if Robert Koch's postulates, if they're going to say that a they being medicine, science, if a disease is caused by a certain bacteria, then the treatment of that disease is an antibiotic or a vaccination to prevent the disease altogether. But if the disease or sickness is not being caused by what you think it's being caused by, is giving antibiotics and vaccinations doing any good? Now, let me interject here. There are people who right now might be tempted to turn us off and say, I've been sick and I've gotten antibiotics and I got better. And think of all the people who like the women who used to die in childbirth without antibiotics. So they might be tempted to say, this is more than I'm willing to entertain. What's the answer to the fact that people have been told and some of them have experienced that they've gotten better as a result of, for example, um, a bacterial infection having an antibiotic. How does that fit into Dr. Cohen's perspective on maybe these things aren't causing the disease? Because we will get to what his thesis is. This is always a hot topic one at, for a specific example is polio. You know, everybody always has a heated heated reaction when you say polio wasn't cured with the vaccine or polio is not caused by a virus. So I'm going to give this example. So polio is a neuro, neurotoxic, neurodegenerative situation. Before Salk came up with his vaccine, it had a lot of, and this is a uh, there's quite a few different papers on this, but the criteria to get a polio vaccine was very broad. And so many things were put in there that wasn't polio. So you could have um, Guillain-Barre, uh, multiple sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's transverse myelitis, which is like a, an infection or a, an injury inflammation on a specific um, level of your vertebrae. So it can go, it can be as high as your C vertebrae, which would make you paralyzed all the way down to the lower lumbar, which might just give you some incontinence problems, you know, so your transverse myelitis can happen on any of your vertebrae, which is a, a very good diagnosis for polio. I mean, that was pretty much what polio was, was a transverse myelitis. But DDT, according to Cowan and a lot of other researchers, DDT was a pesticide that was sprayed heavily in swimming pools, in ponds and lakes, in orchards and farms. And so a lot of times polio, the highest population of people getting it were either farmers, kids in swimming pools. We all know the polio stories. So salt came up with the vaccine. And then after salt came up the vaccine, they reclassified polio. So then they narrowed down what symptoms had to be present in which order in order to get a polio diagnosis. If you would have put that criteria on the prior to salt vaccine polio cases, you have about the same decrease in 
polio cases. You basically get rid of most of the polio. So by reclassifying it, getting the vaccine, reclassifying it, most people believe that the SALK vaccine cured polio. SALK in 1975 said that between 1965 and 1975, over two-thirds of the cases of polio were a direct result of his vaccine. And if you look at the statistics in even America today, it's not as widespread the flaccid paralysis childhood problems. It's more common in like Africa and India and places like that that still use DDT in big quantities, but it's a neuro neurotoxic disease. And so when you look up the statistics on just last year on flaccid paralysis, spinal paralysis, and transverse myelitis, polio is still around in the same numbers. What we do know with polio is letting kids just lay in bed back in the 50s, the nursing of the day was you got sick and you put your feet up for two weeks. And then you have even more problems with rehabilitation and everything like that. So one of the common questions is, well, if polio is still around today, why don't you see the cases of paralysis? It's because we do physical therapy right away. There's all manner of different therapies that we can do to increase the nerve endings back in. And it's generally- And and didn't we stop using DDT? Yeah, it was outlawed back in the 60s. Right. So you would expect that if this theory is correct, that this was the body's response to a neurotoxin once that toxin was no longer widely used, you would expect to see a decrease in cases. Right. And so we still have a decrease in the total number, but you know, there, we still have neurotoxins out there. So we, we're not worried about DDT. Now we just have children with brains full of mercury and lead, which is a neurotoxin. And, right. Right. You so know. I'm going to have you go back a second because we okay. didn't, I know we, I, I fact actually took you off the track but when we were discussing the whole idea of testing the theory of viruses and being able to see if when a healthy animal or specimen or whatever was going to be infected with it, did they get the disease or conditions you saw? And then the book, he says something extremely disturbing that part of their protocols was to inject the substance into monkeys' brains like injecting into brains would ever be a good thing for any animal or human being. Why did they do that? Yes, I don't know exactly as to why. Most likely I would say it's to cause the animal to die to prove their point. But that was one done in, well, they've done it multiple times, but the big recent one was the 2003 SARS was caused by a COVID virus, coronavirus. And so researchers wanted to prove that the coronavirus caused death. So they took a sick person and took their blood, spun it down. They didn't purify it. So they fail on point number one. They don't purify it. They just had a conglomeration of white blood cells and they did get rid of the red blood cells, but it's just the serous fluid of a blood sample that's been spun down centrifuge to separate the parts. So they injected that into the kidneys of an alive monkey. And when that monkey was about ready to croak, they kill it, take its kidneys out, grind them up, and then mixed them all up, and then injected that directly into the brains of two monkeys. Well, as we all learned in science, back in elementary school, it's like you have to have controls You have to have a group of monkeys that don't get anything put into their brain, a group of monkeys that get sterile water put into their brain, a group of, you know, I mean, but to do two monkeys and inject their brains with the exact same gloopy mess of kidney milkshake and put about half a half a cup into their brains. One monkey died of they don't know what the other one got pneumonia and died. And they're like, see, coronavirus caused SARS. So, okay, so I'm going to stop you again. Okay, because. Some people like me, you know, was as I was reading this, I was getting angry. And I was angry because how come we have never heard the contrary thesis? How come the paradigms we have only heard in our schools and in our textbooks have been the germ theory and the viral theory without any sort of other point of view? Could we surmise that this is the same thing as 
um, how we learn civics when the state decides that it's not going to teach the Constitution as it was written. It, do you agree that this is a manifestation of humanism infecting most areas of academics? Oh, definitely. I mean, the, they've set medicine up as a god, and you can't question it. And when you say, okay, SARS coronavirus research team, this isn't real science. I want you to run an honest science experiment and give me a hundred monkeys, each getting the different test. It is, it, it's so controlled. The book also goes into the smallpox in England and they stopped this program early 1900s, but it went from like the 1740s to 19, early 1900s where you were forced to vaccinate your children with cowpox, which they thought was a lesser form of the smallpox. And most of those people that they vaccinated, and this is how they vaccinate it, they scrape off pus from the cowpox, put it on your body, some area, shoulder, and then scrape it in and, you know, mash in all this nasty pus from a cow. And most people died great majority of them, especially the children that they did. But the laws on the books in England were you had to get these vaccinations or we'd take your property and we'd take your kids and vaccinate them anyway. So I think people think that it's a relatively new battle per se, but it's it's been going on. And in the early 1900s, England recognized the whole thing's going to come down if we keep forcing people to do this. We're not, I'm not saying this is what they thought, but it's almost like we're not going to be able to maintain control if we continue to vaccinate or force people to. So we're just going to stop. And they've re restarted it again here. I'm not sure when they reintroduce mandatory vaccinations, but no, it is. It's humanism in medicine. And if you even have a slightly differing opinion, the church from my experience and other people that I know, for the most part, is almost in love with Western medicine. If you come out and, you know, you want to do an alternative treatment for whatever, I mean, I've had pastors preach sermons against that. Like, oh, we need to be careful about this. This is hoodoo, voodoo, witchcraft, and, and you know, basically encouraging the congregation to go with Western medicine. And if if anything's witchcraft, they've got witchcraft. Right. So let's go into like, why would people be so interested in pushing drugs and pushing vaccinations? Well, it wouldn't take too many people to say it's a very lucrative business. And if you're forcing everybody <laughs> exactly. to take a, have a vaccination, even if it was a penny of vaccination, which of course it's not, you'd make a lot of money. I think a, a really important factor of how we become humanist in our orientation is whatever happened to the fact that we're fearfully and wonderfully made and God has given our bodies the, the ability to heal when we're sick. As a matter of fact, there are certain illnesses like I got when I was a child, measles, mumps, chicken pox, German measles that we all got, we got to stay home from school, which was always a lot of fun. We got to sit, you know, <laughs> and watch television or do whatever, right? But then right. our immune system, doing what God intended it for it to do, made us stronger and resilient, and we no longer had to worry about getting a particular disease. Well, the vaccination craze has made it so that they vaccinate against disease and even forget about the negative reactions that some people have. But what it did is you lost the workout of your immune system. So then you see the appearance of rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, things like that. And so people are less likely to be able to combat. And we see a lot of autoimmune diseases because our immune system didn't get worked out as children. Yes, they either didn't get worked out as children or not even the workout. It's the fact that it's so, everything is so toxic. Formaldehyde, lead, mercury, murdered baby cells in the hundreds of thousands. Um, you know, so you introduce that. And if you follow the vaccination schedule currently, by five, a child will have 80 vaccinations. So you put all of that 
pollution and poison into a system and expect it to be healthy. So yes, the immune system didn't get worked out, but I didn't get vaccinated as a, as a child and I was a dumb college student and I didn't think you could refuse. So I got not them all. I have MMR, so measles, mumps, rubella, and I had all of those as a kid. Um, and Tdap and diphtheria, so diphtheria and tetanus, and hepatitis B. So I got, and you know, it's multiples for each. So I probably got a total of 10. And I had all the diseases. My immune system was perfect. I was never sick. So I got the vaccinations, went downhill very rapidly from there because the pollutants in them poison the system. And when we get further on into Dr. Cowan's book, that's one of his theories. And he says that the disease is not what we think it is. Disease is the electromagnetic pollution and environmental toxins. So all the heavy metals, everything that is put in vaccines. So, so you put that into a healthy person and even with a good immune system, it's very, very hard to combat that amount of pollution in the system. Right. So the subtitle of the book, which is entitled The Contagion Myth, is why viruses, including coronavirus, are not the cause of disease. So he's not denying disease. That what is correct. What he is denying is that one person can catch disease from another. Right. Okay. If you're healthy and if your body is prepared to deal with the invasion, right, um, right. it's going to be resisted. Now, in his book, and you might want to go into this, he talks about the four things that contribute to someone being diseased. He actually starts the book with the historian's view and what they mapped out with pandemics. So this is very interesting. So the Chinese 1500 BC had documented multiple different types of comets and the causes that they bring. So with a comet, there's a, a change, a disruption in the electromagnetic frequencies, electricity of the earth. So when they enter the atmosphere, they change. And back to all of our elementary or high school schooling, everything has a charge. Everything has a unique charge, a unique resonance frequency. And one of the experiments you can do to see this is you would have to have the frequency reader, but you put RNA and DNA material. So you can just put skin cells, you know, minute amounts into a plain beaker of water and then you put another beaker of water clear across the room if you want and by morning both beakers of water are resonating that they have rna dna material so thomas cowan on the, the cause of disease like andrea said he's not denying that people aren't sick he's denying what we have come to believe as the cause so with the chinese and the comets and the Chinese at every comet, they documented pandemics with every comet. And when there were no comets, there was no pandemic. There was no mass sickness. And as the world became more technologically advanced in electricity and everything like that, with every new major advent of electricity and technology were new pandemics. So 1918 Spanish flu, the whole world had just been blanketed with radio waves. The majority of Spanish flu cases were on military bases or near telegraph routes. So railroads and in bigger cities, they couldn't find Spanish flu out in the rural communities. It was always congregated around radio and telegraph. And another one further back in the 1700s, the Northern lights disappeared for over a hundred years, as well as there were the astronomers did not mark any sunspots. And it was a very cold time in the heavens with the stars and everything with the northern light. After that, there was the bubonic plague and the sunspots reappeared and the bubonic plague appeared. And, you know, the sunspot activity in the northern lights were at a 
increased activity. And with the increased activity, the bubonic plague lasted almost 100 years. And the Wuhan had just put online over 100,000 5G towers a week before their first COVID case. And so what the 5G towers are doing is they split the oxygen molecule. So O3 is ozone, O2 is oxygen that we breathe, and plain old solitary O is not breathable. doesn't give us any oxygen. So in medicine, there's two, two problems with the exchange of oxygen. There's ventilation, which is simply the air being able to get into your lungs. And then there's oxygenation, which is the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide at the cellular level in your in your lungs. So all of these COVID cases are not having a ventilation problem. They're having an oxygenation problem. And so he went and looked at all the corner cases and autopsies of people who died of Corona. And what he's saying is the symptoms that these people have when they die, their death looks identical to radiation points. Electromagnetic disturbances is number one. Number two, is, I don't know if I'm having them in order, but the other theory he has is the heavy metal pollutants, glycosate, DDT, whatever chemical compound that's poisonous to humans, that's a big cause of disease. And then he calls it dead water. So water is structured and and good water out of a spring has electrical charge, it has minerals, it has an organized structure and the human body they say is 99% water the water though does not exist as liquid water when you cut yourself water just doesn't pour out what water is in your body is a gel it's structured water and so when water turns into ice the molecules of water are stood next to each other like little soldiers and with a gelled water, they're just slightly offset. So it's a, it's a very uniform pattern. Right. It's and, sort of like the way jello looks. Right. And now that you said that, he says a lot of one of his interesting studies, he just brought it up briefly, but he, he footnotes the, the, the different papers if you want to go read it, but of syphilis, how if you had adequate collagen intake in your diet, you would not get syphilis. Like the Tuskegee syphilis trials, when they tried to infect all of those people with syphilis, Mm -hmm. if the people had a good diet and had a good amount of collagen in their diet, the water, his theory, I don't quite know if this is what the research of the syphilis said, but you could not get those people to catch syphilis if they were adequately fed with collagen. So yes, Collagen is a very important factor in ourselves being able to structure the water. Right. And then the fourth thing he said, actually, you actually, I think, gave them in reverse order. He first says injury can affect um, your body Mm -hmm. and then make you susceptible to illness. He said food and water. And if you if you don't have adequate food or nutritional food and water, then the toxins that are all around us. And then of course the electromagnetic, but the interesting part, and um, I had actually heard about this other places. So if he's disputing the idea that there really are germs and there really are viruses and they're not actually contagious, he says that we have been looking at the quote unquote evidence from the wrong perspective, rather than saying, a germ or rather a bacteria or a virus invades the body, that what they see is the body's reaction to one of those four circumstances that we just talked about. And he says that the the viruses and the bacteria are actually there as cleanup crew. So your body has gotten out of whack with either poor nutrition injury, poor water, or an abundance of electromagnetic disturbances. And then what he says is you get a fever, which then melts the gelled water, which then allows these toxins out of the water. So the water's been holding them, waiting for enough to cause a fever 
then you have a fever, then the gel partially melts, these biological toxins come out, and the bacteria and the viruses then set to work cleaning the place up. So, for example, then, aside from a very, very extreme fever that can cause other problems, having a fever is actually beneficial, and it's part of how the body is supposed to work. Exactly. Unless you have a fever causing seizures and in adults, it's, it's a lower temperature. So we can, we can get away with 104 generally before it gets concerning. Kids can go a little bit higher, 106 before it gets really concerning. And then of course, there's the individual responses. So even if you are only 103 and you're seizing, then yes, you're a 103 temperature person. But yes, Knocking down a fever when you are sick is like shooting your watchdog when an intruder comes in the door. It's, <laughs> That's a it's good way to put it. Now, assuming yeah. that we haven't really lost people, <laughs> I'm hoping we haven't. <laughs> so Dr. Cohen calls people. these things exosomes, that the exosomes are the cleanup crew. They're the ones coming in trying to surround the enemy and allow your body to get rid of it. Exosomes are viruses. So exosome equals virus, but exosome doesn't equal bacteria. So they've identified and isolated the bacteria, but all viruses can also be called exosomes. Okay. Does that make sense? So in essence, then an antibacterial isn't, you don't give vaccinations for bacterial infections. Vaccinations are usually given for viral infections, but if you have misinterpreted what you're seeing, aside from not helping the body get rid of all this, you're actually introducing other substances, which can cause further exosomes to come about because your body's not intended to deal with all this stuff. Right. So back to the question earlier about if Thomas Cowan's thesis is correct, then what about antibiotics and other medications? I worked 10 years in a trauma ICU and most of your trauma patients end up getting infections at one point or another. So reading this book, I'm like, okay, so are they really infections now? You know I mean? It totally changes how you see a problem. Just from my experience, again, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I have continued to learn after college and I'm very interested in all of this. But just from my experience taking care of patients, you have a bacterial infection and they get all of these antibiotics. And I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to say if the antibiotics helped or if time they were going to get better anyway, or was it all the good IV fluids we were doing, giving their body a chance to fight it? So that question is kind of hard to answer because there is very little studies done in that vein. So if the germ theory is correct, Louis Pasteur is accurate, then antibiotics, you need to give them. And in withholding them, you're going against your Hippocratic Oath and the Bible and treating people how you should be treating them. So it's one of those things that they don't really study. We've got 20 people here who are sick with a MRSA infection, and we got 20 people over here are sick with a MRSA infection, very similar histories, very similar situations, blah, blah. We'll give these 20 the antibiotic, and we won't give these 20 an antibiotic. We'll just give them IV fluids and see how they do. So that is, that's where it gets interesting because, again, if, if, the bag, if the antibiotic is true, to deny it to some people and give it to others isn't really good medicine. I remember when my children were sick, we had a doctor who we loved. He was the kind of doctor that would come and do house calls. He was the kind of doctor who'd say, look, mom, if you're concerned and you're up at 2 a.m., call me up and I can help you. And then we can both go back to sleep. But I remember when my children got sick, I would say, so should I put them on antibiotics or not? And he said, well, you know. You could. And I said, okay, so if I put him on antibiotics, how long should I expect before he'd be better? And he would say, about two weeks. And I said, and if I didn't, he said, about 14 about days. <laughs> yes. So in less severe infection situations, 
that's very true. Those type of things are quite common. Like you get a, a cut on your leg and it gets infected. And they're like, oh, give them some antibiotics. And then you have a group of people like you who will say, oh, you know, well, what's my options? Okay, I'll come back to you if it's not healed in two weeks and we can do antibiotics. And they never come back. But when you get the real, real sick people who are septic, the their blood pressure so low and everything like that. And I remember reading, and maybe I shouldn't mention this because I don't have the article with me for people to reference, but it was, and science doesn't like anecdotal evidence, our science of today. They want double-blind controlled studies by the same people who are making the drugs. Yet I find it funny, though, when they do do the study, they don't even do it correctly they just use two monkeys and put stuff in their brains and they both die and that's called science when you get all of the anecdotal evidence and the, how people report antibiotics on the vast majority of people really do no good they don't cure them any faster and then you're stuck with a slew of side effects like one of the drug vancomycin it's a strong antibiotic and it's given for MRSA but one of the side effects of vancomycin is exploding tendons. So you have people who get a, a round of vancomycin, then their shoulder blows, their Achilles tendon blows. I mean, like major tendon damage from vancomycin. It's still prescribed for little things if you wanted it. There's so many side effects rather than waiting out a, a little infection and seeing if you really do need antibiotics or if you think you do. Right. When you talk about side effects, I mean, anybody who reads the inserts in medications all the way through, aside from, you know, having permanent eye strain, or like how many people, <laughs> how many people read the agreements before you click on the software that you're going to do? Almost not. Oh, right. All right? right. So they have all these can cause this, could cause this. Sometimes the side effects mimic the thing you're trying to fix. How, how do you or even know? Or the side know? effects is worse than what you have. And this gets back to my original point that do we believe that God heals? And do we believe that our body, if we give it good nutrition, if we get enough sleep, and if we are aware of places that will be more harmful to us health-wise, and we start paying attention to that, do we have to, the first instant of a problem, have to call a doctor? We have lost the sense that illness, yes, has causes, but there's also a spiritual component, as Dr. Rushduni mentioned, that if you're busy in your life sinning, you shouldn't be surprised if you suddenly start having health issues because the wages of sin is death and death is usually preceded by health issues. So it's not, I mean, we're all going to die. I mean, none of us are going to mm -hmm. get out of here alive, but we can be healthier to the degree that we live according to God's word. And also with the sin nature of man and the personal sin that a, a person is committing, like their own sin, then you have the society sin and what they promote and everything like that. And talking about the effects of sin, the effects of your sin, the effects of sin of people around you, you start seeing the vaccines and you have vaccine. I just read an article today from LifeSite News about the top four drug manufacturers that Pfizer, Pfizer, Merck, and the other two are skipping my mind right now, but have in the last 10 years incurred felony federal charges for murder, for fraud, for many, many things into the tune of $35 billion. And that's just on their, that's on their non-vaccine drugs. That's on their blood pressure, their antibiotics, because the vaccines all are seen in a special court, the vaccine court. The 35 billion is just in the safish type of drugs. So the vaccine manufacturers Merck said, and again, 
viruses really don't cause disease then you know but he claimed a couple of years ago came out and said that we put cancer viruses into vaccines to cause cancer to create patients said that straight up press conference yeah and that's readily available information from a lot of different sources that's not just from dr cowan right and so on to the vaccine so the number one pusher of the roe versus wade was the vaccine industry because they found if they grew their viruses in human tissue it was better accepted and caused more problems in the recipient so they were they wanted legal murdered babies to grow their vaccines in so you've got vaccines with murdered babies they conjugate a lot of viruses so that means they split and splice the viruses in with other cells in order to get an improved immune response but a lot of the the vaccines are conjugated with amazon rainforest frogs that change sex when there is a shortage of one of the sexes and so then you put in the heavy mercury your heavy metals mercury and lead and they renamed it thimerosal but it's still mercury just because you rename it doesn't change what it is and then we inject these into kids and the hepatitis b vaccine was developed by gates and he trialed it in africa and he did it on 12 to 16 year old children and the neuro decline the cognitive decline the cases of gillian barre or polio were so many that if america was to vaccinate our children at the same age for hepatitis b probably bring down the whole industry like people would just hopefully rise up and say why are we going to do that so to get around the hepatitis b we give it to newborns because they don't do anything so you're not going to really notice a cognitive decline except for death but um or or children who have add adhd or all sorts of other things when they start going to school yes you are right let me just take the conversation a little bit here because i'm sure there's some people who go i'm so tired of conspiracy theories these are anecdotal pieces of information so let me go back to the whole idea of anecdotal Um, Lots of things in life are anecdotal. It means that I'm telling a story on based on what happened. And based on what you're saying and Dr. Cohen is saying, a lot of the settled science based on really good scientific method didn't always involve honesty in the results. That when all is said and done, if these experiments had not been conducted honestly, And if there was an ulterior motive in terms of wanting to sell a product, we should at least be skeptical and do our own research. Because I started off by saying, how do we heal the medical profession? Well, I think we could start by saying people shouldn't rely on the party line. They should investigate. They should want to make a point of finding alternative views and paradigms and then comparing it. Because I know you're not saying it right now, and I'm not saying it. We're not making blanket statements that nobody should take antibiotics. And if you feel like you should have a vaccination, you're not free to take one. But it's the idea that for some people saying, I don't want to wear a mask, or I don't want to get a vaccination, or I don't want to do this, or I don't want to do that, isn't based on that they're trying to kill the world. It's that they've reasoned it out and they say, this doesn't make sense to me. And I don't believe I can faithfully do something that I think is wrong. Exactly. And to the point, medicine has become untouchable to even question the veracity of any statements. You automatically get labeled a conspiracy theorist. The CIA came up with that term to... After Operation Mockingbird, the CIA said, we will know we've succeeded when everything the American public believes is a lie. And so then you had some people questioning the major news outlets in medicine. And then so then they come up with the term conspiracy theorist to take any credit away from us because you're just one of those crackheads who sit with tinfoil on your head. Like you're saying, it's like research it for yourself. If, if you think Andrew and I are crazy, and you read the book yourself. Read all of Cohen's proof texts. Yeah. 
and, and then come and say, oh, they're a bunch of conspiracy theorists drinking the bathwater. But especially among Christians, the fact that we give medicine godlike status that can't be questioned, we do what they say, just fall into line. Why are you just going to swallow the party line, hook, line, and sinker, and not even do any research on your own? And just to give people a reference point, there have been times in the past where there have been medical practices and theories that were proved wrong over time. Probably the one that people will be familiar with is that sailors who were out at sea for a very long period of time were coming down with a fatal disease called scurvy. But they, did, they thought it was some sort of germ. They thought it was an infection. What it was, was a vitamin C deficiency. And when these people got vitamin C, suddenly the quote unquote disease went away, as did the theories as to how people were getting it. So exactly. it's even worthwhile to study the history of medicine to see all those times where people were telling you something was beneficial and it turned out not to be. Exactly. Yes. I mean, I remember in the 50s, television first came out in the 50s and everybody on, you know, all the characters and things were smoking cigarettes. And then they had doctors in commercials saying how good cigarette smoking was for you and all sorts of things. Well, yeah. Were they right? <laughs> exactly. I really appreciate Elizabeth. And as I said, neither you nor I purport to be experts, but we both found this book very interesting. And I thought people might want to know about it because they're not going to bump into it accidentally. But it's, the book is called The Contagion Myth, Why Viruses, Including Coronavirus, Are Not the Cause of Disease. And then I highly recommend Dr. Rush Dooney's Faith and Wellness. And the subtitle of that is Resisting the State Control of Healthcare by Restoring the Priestly Calling of Doctors. And I hope those who are listening, no matter what stage of life you're at, you at least need to become your own doctor and nurse, well-educated enough so that when you're in front of a medical professional, you can ask the right questions and discover whether or not the recommendations are something valuable to you. And I mean, that is the biggest point. Being a nurse for, what is it, 12 years now? Your health is, is you're in charge of it. And whenever I talk to my patients and, you know, they, they have a question about this procedure and they question about that, I'll always answer their questions. But I'm like, you need to ask the doctor and make sure sure he answers all of your questions. And if you're still not sure, you don't have to do this. So many patients don't feel like they can talk to doctors and ask them and question and go against any of their recommendations. And they're doctors and they are practicing medicine. And so it is, it's true. You need to be knowledgeable and know your stuff. Don't, don't wait for things to happen. And then you're, you know, stuck at the mercy of everybody else. And can't, can't tell them what, what you want or what you think. You know, my dad was a physician and um, he lived to be 98 years old. And he used to joke and say, you know, we don't know everything. He says, why do you think they, they say that we're practicing medicine? Because none <laughs> of us get it right. <laughs> right. And good doctors are humble like that and willing to willing to help you if you're the patient. I mean, if, if a doctor comes in and says, oh, you, where'd you get that off of Google? Honestly, it's like, why am I even going to listen to what he says? He's already basically proving that what I think doesn't matter. You know, I mean, right. he can do a lot of bad information off of Google, but people are smart enough to understand this themselves. And so to just float idly by through life and not take any interest in it, it's something that the church does need to be involved in. And the churches that I've gone to and, you know, Christians that I've talked to, most people have a very, very, very false view of what actually goes on in hospitals. In they, they think it's what they see on television. I always joke. Everybody watches shows on television and says they want to be a doctor. Well, most of what you see the doctors do on television, the nurses do. <laughs> so they really exactly. probably want to be a nurse. And so I say this because not unlike your parents, 
who decided that their girls were going to learn a profession to be able to be useful to themselves, their families, and um, society. But I hope that people don't discourage going into these fields. And yes, there's a lot of bad information there. There is a lot of humanism. But if you're grounded in the word of God, not unlike Elizabeth and her sisters, you can make your way through it and be able to be part of the solution rather than just pointing the finger at the problem. So Elizabeth, thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. You're welcome. Thank you, listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this podcast, or you would like us to talk about a particular subject in the future, you can reach me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.